Welcome to Sweat Day with Mike Pollard. I've got Freddie Ost from Snask, where he is the founder and creative director, uh, an agency that's been around for 11 years. Welcome, Freddie. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I know very much what I want to talk to you about, and that word is attitude. I've, I've seen your work for the past couple of years. I think the first I came across it was on Behance when I was trawling for interesting and beautiful design. And mm -hmm. I, do, I do often scour the Scandinavian internet, and I came across your Monkey Festo campaign. So could you just tell us what that campaign is? And I want to use that as a way to get into your creative philosophy and the attitude that you have in your work because it's so strong. And I just find there's so much bland stuff out there right now that hopefully <laughs> some of the work that you guys do can be a bit of an antidote to the, the blandness out there. Yeah, well, thank you for that. That sounds exactly how I would like to describe what we do. Uh, well, uh, to start off with the monkey case, uh, H&M bought this female fashion brand that had been around for like eight years. And when they got bought up, they kind of lost their DNA. Their DNA was basically to stand on the young women's side, uh, be very feministic. And um, two years after that, when they turned 10 years, they realized, holy shit, we, are, we lost our DNA. Uh, so they contacted us and like, how can we find our way back on our 10th year anniversary? So what we did was we did, it's a lot of strategy basically, but we, we decided to do a manifesto that called Monkeyfesto, which was 10 points, one for each year of existence. And uh, every point would be very strong feministic messages and uh, tied to an ambassador uh, that would basically yeah, uh, stand for that point of the manifesto uh, and then we um, made a design out of this a lot of by hand and in paper and we also used typography as a homage to barbara kruger so very barbara kruger-esque uh, from the she was a feministic typographer from the 70s graphic designer um, and we basically made this campaign with strong messages for, well, it might, it might not be that strong in Scandinavia, but in the rest of the world, probably more so. But uh, yeah, so, and this, yeah, so we just pushed that really hard and um, it became something that we, we really like and stand for and uh, got a lot of attention, which also brings us to value-based branding and communication, which we firmly believe in. Our own book is about this, it's called Make Enemies and Gain Fans. And what we mean by that is basically that if you as a person or a brand or a company or whatever have beliefs, which hopefully you do, and also stand up for them, you will create enemies no matter what, but you will also get real fans, real ambassadors. And this is something that brands really want today. They want someone who doesn't only scroll through. They want someone who likes, like someone who should press share, someone who tags their friends. It's called engagement. And it's now proven that, that more and more people want to have value-based brands or know what brands have, what values brands have, basically. Mm. And, and so for, even for the book title, Make, Make Enemies Gain Fans, uh, let alone the work that you guys do, it seems to be very, you, your work seems to very quickly get into extremes. Is that, a, is that how you approach it? You know, what's an extreme? How far can we push this? Uh, based on some kind of value. So it's not just a value that everyone can agree with and it's nice. It's like, what's the extreme version of that value? A real strong statement for people to, to kind of ruffle their feathers? Well, yeah, I mean, we always 
push the client uh, always, always. Uh, because, I mean, you need to in this world. It's so going on in the wrong direction in one way and in another sense it's going in the right direction. But then you need to kind of be on the correct side of that. Uh, and I think that when it comes to communication, when it comes to your brand, you need to be very clear with the audience what values you have, what values you believe in, what's what you communicate. And by that, I think being extreme is just the same as being very clear what your brand is and what it stands for. Ooh, that's an interesting thought. Could you talk to me a bit more about that, that being extreme is the same as being clear? Yeah, I mean, well, take almost any brand. They're extremely boring and bland, and they believe that if we don't say anything that can upset anyone, then people might like us. Well, when was the last time you went to a party or a dinner and the person went into the room who had nothing to say that was basically not in politically just in the middle? Um, I think that would be extremely boring. Um, I think that that uh, that a brand and a person becomes interesting when it has opinions. And I think, of course, you shouldn't have extreme opinions, but I do think that you need to be extreme in a corporate culture in order to be remotely interesting because where you end up, you need to have kind of a carrot in order to end up somewhere interesting. And I think seeing yourself or your communication of brand more when in an extreme point of view will take you there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just with the monkey festo campaign for monkey, the extremes that you use there are visual as well as verbal. And one of the main images that I, I see associated with that case study is uh, a woman with the words, please yourself st- uh, standing in front of a vagina. Is that correct? Yeah, that's Carla Scartini. She's uh, actually the sex columnist on Vogue magazine. Okay. And we built this vagina out of paper. And uh, the reason behind that statement is that we, it's a lot of talk about ma- male masturbation, uh, but no one ever talks about female masturbation. It's a lot of talk about men, uh, boys when they're young, like teasing or even touching uh, girls and or hitting them even. And the teachers just say, oh, it's just because he or them are interested in you. And that's where it starts. The problem starts. And mm-hmm. um, then it comes to sexual education in school. And you talk a lot about that, that boys, boys will be boys, boys do this, boys do that. But you never talk about girls. And it's just strange and wrong. Did you, with that particular campaign, did you have a, a lot of even, uh, and it's not, I don't mean to say that that image is extreme, but in some people's minds it, it probably is. But relative to that image, did you have less, even did you have a lot more mm, provocative and unexpected ideas that you didn't get to, get to make that the client wasn't comfortable with? Because that as an image is actually, that's, it's amazing that that client uh, supported that. that. That is definitely an extreme piece of clarity. <laughs> for us, for us, uh, we had a strategy together with the client, and we knew that H&M, as a mother company, would come in and cut. And that, and because of that, we chose to put every statement very extreme, visually and verbally, and 
so that when H&M came in, we would fight. And if we then landed somewhere in a compromise, it would still be sharp and still edgy and still provocative. So that's where we kind of, our, our strategy was, and that's how it worked out, and it worked out well. But I mean, in, in our world as well, making a vagina out of paper is, I mean, vaginas is 50% of the whole world uh, has, or even more, 51% of the world has vaginas. I'm not sure if it's, for us, it's not that strange. Uh, there are dicks everywhere in the world everywhere there are depicted dicks so i think that mm -hmm. one vagina out of paper i don't think see, i don't think it should be provoking even though it is for some people yeah and it's it's a relative thing i'm not and I, I, when i'm using these adjectives i'm not making any personal judgment i just i'd, no, be, of course. I'd be surprised if an h&m related company could use that kind of imagery in america for example maybe i'm wrong maybe times have changed or will change uh so it, it's obviously a relative thing that technique that you mentioned where you you know, I've heard there are different words for it. So, for example, the Goldilocks gambit, where you have three mm -hmm. types of ideas that you want to present that get hotter and hotter or more extreme and more extreme. Do you have a name for that approach that you have where you go in with the extreme stuff where the middle ground is still kind of out there? Uh, not really a name for it. And I mean, we don't really have a middle ground and a lower ground when we go into the meeting. We only have the the extreme ground and we fight to get that across. I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't suggest an ex something extreme that wouldn't work, but we are ready to fight for the idea. And, uh, and then if it ends up being medium, then yeah. But I mean, we also tell the client sometimes, and this happens that now you are taking a decision which makes the, which results that we are not even going to case this on our website or Behance or whatever because we don't think it's edgy enough anymore. And if you take this decision, well, yeah, we can produce it for you, but we're not going to be proud of it. We're not even going to show anyone. And that's just being honest. And I think mm -hmm. that that helps. Mm -hmm. I love that kind of directness. That's, that's not possible in all markets. Uh, is that something that you... Just is that just part of the business culture here, or is it because you're so deeply committed to how you guys do work and how you think about the work that you hope to attract clients who want it? So in effect, if they don't go with what you're recommending, it's almost like, well, why are we even together? Yeah, well, basically, I mean, we've been working with the biggest investment bank in the Nordics, Nordea Markets, and there was a lot of strategy work there. Uh, and it was the same there. It was just being honest honesty and, and, and pushing it. But it, it, it is also something Scandinavian maybe about it, that we are, can be direct and that there's very much less hierarchy and titles. And whenever we go over to the US and we are very direct, because we always use, almost always have an ad agency in between, when we, at least when we produce film in the US. Um, and. <laughs> it's very often that uh, agency people get afraid in the meeting when we are outspoken towards the client because we don't see the client as being the king or the queen in the meeting. We see us being the king and the queen. We came in, they paid us to be the experts. We are the experts. We know, we believe in ourselves and we go in and say exactly what we think and being honest. And it actually works out. But most of the times the agency people tell us afterwards that, wow, we, we would never dare to say what you just did. 
and uh, yeah so i think it's just a made up uh norm that someone created that the, the client is always right and the client knows more and stuff like that mm -hmm. but over here it's the opposite well i think that's about i i think this is correct that australia scandinavia and maybe holland i think kids are taught that adults like we have a different we're brought up to understand hierarchy differently and that a boss or an adult is there to help make things happen but not necessarily to dominate and that encourages this direct conversation whereas other cultures it is very top down it is very king or queen and that's within families within religious institutions within business and it's it's kind of bizarre when you're brought in to do creative work into a place that has this king or queen dynamic that you're talking about because there's not often frank and honest discussion about how to do good work and all of a sudden you have to work out what the hell am i even there to do if it's not to do that yeah you look at the the un uh, recently fired uh, this norwegian guy uh, because he was very outspoken about that he thought that the hierarchy within the un is ridiculous it's it actually is ridiculous it has so many levels and if you're like 35 years old and you worked in the un you can't be higher than a certain place in the hierarchy because mm. you haven't had time because it takes so long time. But at the same time, the, sh the world around them are changing and they are not changing fast enough. And it's because the young people don't get high enough in the hierarchies to have decision-making positions. And now he, they forced him to leave the UN because of this. And it's just, it's everywhere in the world. And it's not good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for, and for those, I've, mentioned, I've talked a little bit about cultures and business cultures before, but there's, there's actually some research that Business Insider put out a few years ago. And sometimes I'll, I share the, the uh, I forgot the guy's name who actually did the research, but in Scandinavia, it's a little bit more circular, the business culture, a little bit more of everyone's a peer attitude, whereas mm -hmm. other places are very much about the organizational chart. And I got to tell you, having worked in some big places in America, the amount of time that is spent looking at and talking about an organizational chart and how to reorganize it, it blows my mind. It, I think more yeah. times, in many places, more time is spent doing that, looking at the organizational chart and talking about it than actually talking about how to do good work and whether work, the work's any good. Um, it's, it's kind of bizarre. But talk to yeah. me a little bit about the, the North Korea rebrand project that you guys, I remember when you published that initially and uh, I loved it. I'm a bit of a career file. Tell us about the project, how you approached it, why you did it. Yeah, well, basically, we got a lot of questions throughout our years. Uh, what's your dream project? What's your dream client? And uh, we always said North Korea because we thought that the day North Korea becomes a democracy and an open country, it will have massive brand problems. If you would compare that country to a company, it's a company where the employees believe that the CEO is highly respected as a fashion icon, as a sports icon, as a leader of sorts in the whole world, but the reality is, is, is not, it's quite the opposite. Uh, it's, a, it's a company where the, the company culture within is really, really horrendous. And yeah, it's like, well, like the internal view of the brand compared to the external view of the brand is extremely big. Uh, difference and I think that's very interesting 
when it comes to uh, branding. So for us, we, we were really interested in that. And then one day, uh, this uh, magazine called Pay, uh, can't remember what their name was, but they uh, they contacted us and they wanted us to, yeah, you can get one page in our magazine and rebrand a company. And we were like, fuck it, we don't want to rebrand a company, we want to rebrand North Korea. So we decided to make it for real and not just an edited piece in the magazine. So we, yeah, we, 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 we branded the, the North Korea into Love Korea. I'm, I'm self is, I'm adopted from South Korea when I was one and a half years old to, to Sweden, but that doesn't mean I know anything about South Korea, North Korea and the conflict mm. basically per se. But we, what we did was we, we, we thought that wouldn't it be nice if we could unite the countries or at least instead of having North and South, we could just name it Love Korea instead of South Korea or North Korea. Uh, and uh, we also uh, made, decided to put this identity uh, online and with downloadable files and told and sent a letter to the embassy in Stockholm that uh, the day you become a free democracy of the world, um, of international standards, uh, you we you will be allowed to use this identity for free, um, and uh, yeah, we did various sources. I mean, I mean, I must say that we didn't believe that oh, this is going to change everything, and this is the correct way of doing it. We merely wanted to see if we could create some kind of change in people's in a thought by making the sign, and I think it was really interesting. We got a lot of threats which was just funny in a way. Uh, what do you mean? What kind of threats? One was we took away the com communist uh, star on the flag and replaced it with a heart. Uh, a lot of uh, like people got really angry with that. And we also had someone say, uh, remove website now or cyber attack you. We also had uh, someone emailing, final warning, remove flag now. Uh, or there will be consequences. But we just replied that we haven't got a first warning, so we can't take this final warning serious until you send the first warning. And they never replied to that. Wow. Uh, <laughs> where, where, where do you think those warnings were coming from? Uh, I think it's just trolls. Internet trolls. But don't you hope it's more interesting than that? <laughs> well, I mean, we had one from a North Korean uh, official website, but it was Juan or Juan Pedro or something at. So we were like, this is not even a Korean guy. This is their communist friend from maybe South America emailing us from, I mean, it was just very strange. And mm -hmm. they, never, they never gave us any more answers on it. So, I mean, I think, I don't know. Right. Have you done many yeah. other pro projects like that just for the sake of it? And how do you approach them? How much time do you spend on them? And what kind of benefits do you see? Because I think a lot of people either just who are maybe freelancing or consulting wonder about how to promote themselves. And then a lot of agencies wish that they had more time to do passion projects and whatnot. How do you approach them normally? And, and what else have you done? Well, I think everything has to do with priorities. I mean, if you have a relationship and you say that I don't have time to spend with my family or I don't have time for this and this, it basically means you don't prioritize it. Uh, that's, that's, you have to prioritize your time. And the same thing goes with business. If you firmly believe that profit is the only thing that matters and that's the only way to keep employees happy or whatever, 
or there are other things like benefits. Yeah, that's your way, but we firmly believe that that people need to be allowed to work on passion projects as well in order to have lead a healthy lifestyle at work or be happy or feel that you can be creative or have no boundaries sometimes. So we, we, we prioritize to have passion projects. I mean, one we have is shower beer where we created this beer specifically made to drink in the shower. Um, we also right now rebuilding our bathroom into the world's shittiest Will Ferrell Museum. It's also a really fun project where, where we, everyone, anyone can ask go and like work on it for a few hours if they feel tired or if they feel like yeah they got stuck in a project or if they ask one of yeah I mean so I mean I think it's just about prioritizing. Where does your philosophy come from as far as I guess two parts of two themes that I'm hearing one is the extreme the provocation the directness the outspokenness that as a theme whatever that is and then the second one is around work-life attitude and living a creative life, which hopefully will make a profit, but that is not purely profit-driven. Yeah, well, I think it just comes from us, because when we, when, we, when we graduated back in 2007, we were much like, okay, this is a white man's world-dominated industry, as much as any industry probably is, but when we graduated, we realized that we have to start at the bottom of any ladder and slowly climb ourselves up and lick upwards and kick downwards seemed to be the way people were doing it. And every big member or whatever, award shitty thing was ruled by old white men. And the more we got into the industry, we also find that out for real. But back then when we were students, we were like, we don't wanna, we wouldn't wanna be a part of this industry. This industry was also, listening a lot to Kotler's theory of marketing and that guy created those those principles way before the internet even existed so I'm not mm -hmm. sure how relevant they are even but we were like fuck it let's just start our own company and make every mistake we can but also first see if it is a mistake and secondly if it is a mistake what's our solution to the problem instead of someone else's and that way we should find after a while our way of doing things and our way of believing and our, our own methods. And now 11 years down the line, it's, it's that that is the way and we still make a lot of mistakes and we're not afraid of making them. And we believe that that's the way to, to kind of be a part of change because if you're not part of the change today, you will very fast become obsolete as a brand or a company or a person. So we think that keep making mistakes and learning from them and changing is the way to, to just survive today as a company. Mm -hmm. And so you set up Snask straight out of university, right? Yeah. And are you saying that you did that? Because that's a pretty bold move. I mean, the conventional thought, uh, and I don't know if this is because of college debt being different here compared to America, but the conventional thought would be to spend a few years working for someone, learning the ropes, hopefully getting rid of some of that debt, and then maybe starting your own thing. What, why were you so confident? Or did you just feel that you had to because of the, what you were talking about with who was in the industry and whether they would even let you in? Well, no, I mean, it, we, we were very direct and, and, and firm in our decision that we would start up instantly. Uh, 
but it, I mean, I think it also was that, like you said, the industry wasn't very attractive to us. We found, for example, that being in Sweden and Stockholm didn't matter to us. We could have been anywhere. We, we just wanted to be online because that's where we found people with the same interests and thoughts as ourselves. So that was one thing. Uh, and I mean, yeah, it is, maybe it's seen as bold, but I mean, everyone told us you need at least 10 years in the industry to be able to start your own company. But I mean, that means you learn other people's whatever they're doing. Like if you learn boxing and you learn the ropes by, by sparring with someone for five years, and then when you go out in the world, you learn that, oh, now you can, you're allowed to kick as well. Well, then you learn the wrong way. You should have just gone out there and, and learned the real, the real thing or whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that people put too much emphasis on, on, on what other people know and to learn what other people know. I think that's kind of easy to learn what other people already know. You can read books, you can read magazines, you can do whatever. But I think the harder thing and what we need in this world are people who think for themselves and learn critical thinking and to actually create their own methods or their own solutions to problems. Uh, I think that's that what you say adjustability or whatever is will be extremely attractive to companies in the future. Yes, yes, you're talking my language. You've actually got a quite interesting educational background in that you've studied in art school as well as you've studied psychology, is that correct? Yeah, yep. How did you end up in both of those things and, and like separately and then how do they affect you together? Well, I started out not knowing as a lot of people what to do after I went out my the I'm not sure what it's called elementary I'm not sure but um, so when I went to university I basically yeah psychology sounds interesting so I read psychology I read science I read um, like history of science I read uh, rhetorics which is basically the art of convincing people and speaking uh, and also more uh, media and media communication science but at this time, I, we, I also started a club night where we basically booked bands and DJed every other week. And I started doing the flyers and the website for this. And I was like, hmm, okay, this is really fun. And that brought me into graphic design. Um, and it wasn't until later that I realized that everything I'd been studying actually was beneficial for, for what I was doing. But I also think that no matter what you did, I think all experience can be can be useful, no matter what you did. Mm -hmm. You just mm -hmm. need to use it in the right way. And you've mentioned that you, because you you've done graphic design, you're a creative director, and you do strategy. How does strategy and, for one of a better word, quote unquote, creative? How do they connect at SNASC? How what activities are seen as strategic? And what activities are seen as well, creative? I mean, for us, they're very, very interconnected. Um, it's not just visual. I think that everything we do, we want to have some kind of meaning behind it. We want to have some kind of like strategy-based thinking behind everything. So, and I think that is almost the same thing as being creative. You have to twist and turn on a company's brand or whatever and find an interesting angle and then create an idea for it. So I think that it's very like hand in hand 
so to speak. And I think that coming to the conclusion, I mean, we do a lot of branding work and uh, creating, for example, a graphic identity. For us, it's a visual translation of a brand platform and a tonality platform. Basically, seeing it as a person before you can choose the clothes and haircut for a person, you need to know who is this person, basically the brand platform, and what is this person saying and how, how is he or she saying it. I think you need to know that before you can choose someone's clothes and haircut. Um, so I think that's, that's basically the strategy behind a lot of things we do. We want to know that. And can you talk us through some of the brand platforms that you've come up with? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do with loads of them, but uh, yeah, as I said, very easily put, it's finding out personality, but we always start with what are you today or who are you today? But, but let's say, what are you today? Um, and then finding that out together with the, with the company or the client. And then in the next step is who do you want to be or what do you want to be? And that's something different. And once we found that out, we find out who should you be or what should you be? And that's different to who they want to be and who they are today. And uh, that's, uh, for us, it's very interesting because it always ends up somewhere else than where they wanted to be before we started. Um, and then when we have where they, where they should be, then we can start talking about what they should say and in what way they should say it. But I mean, it's like taking a, a father, for example, who wants to be a better father. Uh, we can start with saying, who are you today? What are you doing today? And then we can ask, what would you like to do? And what would you want to be? And then we can finally, like, who should you be? And what should you do? And you... then that's, okay, sorry. I was just going to say, can you recall any specific answers from a client that really stuck with you to the question, who do you want to be? What do you want to be? Yeah, I mean, a lot of companies, like some of them want to be us. <laughs> we found that out. So we rebranded this mobile agency and they, they told us, like, we're a creative, independent mobile agency doing great design work. And we were like, you're not... You're not independent, uh, you're not creative, and you don't do great design. And we were like, this is, this is simply not true. Um, and it, of course, they thought it was harsh, but they kind of knew it. They were, they, we were very honest with them, and they understood it. And then they, they kind of wanted to be snask. But we told them instead, instead of being creative, you're very innovative, because you're a mobile agency, you're, you're, your people are very innovative. Uh, you're not independent. You just just take that away. And instead of you don't do great design, but you do very functional design because that's what they do, very UX functional kind of. And when we found that out for them, what they should be, they were basically like, we didn't even know that we wanted, that we should be this, but now when we have it on paper, it's actually completely correct what we should be. Mm. Yeah, it's, always oh, it's always interesting to see the power of what some people might think is negative thinking, but seeing, seeing it as more of a carpentry tool that helps you through saying no or not to actually get to what's true in a powerful way. Whereas 
some people in business are very reluctant to deal with that kind of conversation because they feel like they're getting personally criticized. Yeah, but those people should go to a psychiatrist because I mean, <laughs> every, no, but really every relationship or every personal development has to do with questioning oneself, questioning your own brand or company or methods and being able to see flaws as something that everyone has and not something that is strictly forbidden at a company or in a person or whatever. I think that the same goes for relationships. If you, if you don't have an open communication, you will end up in trouble in that relationship, definitely. Um, so I think that it kind of follows very private, a private life actually having customer relationships for us is very similar to having friendly or partner relationships as well. Hmm. I, I hear that. Can you, if you think back to your childhood, were you always interested in extreme ideas and provoking and getting attention for those things? I'm totally putting, uh, not that I know you, but I'm just, I'm guessing. Could, were you like that as a kid or did you develop that as a teenager or as an adult? Uh, I think uh, in one way maybe I was, but I mean, I think what I had was very self-belief that if anyone can do anything, they were, they're also humans, that means I can do it. Um, and I always had that belief. And I remember when I was younger and people said, uh, asked me and I said, yeah, maybe I want to be a pilot. And they were like, wow, like, do you really think that you could be a pilot? And I was always like, why do you even ask that? Because I think it can be anything because anyone can be anything. I think that was from my mom and dad telling me that you can do whatever you want. Everything you want to do, you can do. Sounds very cliche, but it kind of stuck with me, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, but I think the rebellious side has always also been a strong part in me, always questioning everything that I saw as not being correct. And I think I always had a problem dealing with authority. I did a military service in Sweden for 10 months. It's very, very authoritative. You have to listen to the persons above you. And I always was very outspoken and honest when something was wrong, even no matter who said it. And it only made me raise, rise in the ranks in the military. It was just every, every time I was honest, it was just uh, appreciated. Oh. Uh, uh, so I think that... Can, um, you me, can you give me some examples? Yeah, I mean, uh, I always like... Like sometimes they were just very angry with me. Like if if we were going to uh, repair our band wagons, for example, but I knew that we were not going to do any repair. We were just going to investigate them and then move on. I would wear a basker, which is a beret basically. Uh, and then when we came there, the lieutenant would scream at me for not wearing the repairing hat. And I was like, but this is, we're not going to repair. Everyone knows we're not going to repair the van wagon. So it doesn't matter what I have on my head. And he would scream at me to run and get my, my repair hat. But I would, then I would just walk slowly and get my repair hat so he would get his right. Or one other time when we were investigating that we had everything in, in, in our vehicles and he would be like, yeah, find this iron uh, rod or whatever that you have in your truck and hold it up. And you would find it, you, there's only one in every track. So I found it, held it up, and he screamed, like, what the fuck's wrong with you? I was like, I, I, nothing is wrong with me. And he said, you're holding it up in the wrong hand. 
And I was like, doesn't matter for you because you're just going to see that we have one in each truck. So it doesn't matter if it's right or left hand, I hold it in. Stuff like that. And he would, they would be frustrated sometimes. But, but then again, I was always honest. So sometimes it just paid off, to be honest, where mm-hmm. I would be like, we would be in speaking with the mayor uh, and a lot of the other people who were, what do you say, I was, what do you say, chosen to represent my platoon. And there were other people who were chosen to represent their platoon. And they were basically, they, they were, they loved the war or whatever. They were very macho. So they would be like, yeah, let's discuss Russia. But the mayor was like, yeah, you're 18 year olds. I don't want to discuss Russia with you. It doesn't even matter. So when it came to my turn, I was just like, yeah, I think a problem is that we don't have enough ping pong rackets in the cafeteria when we want to play ping pong. And then the other guys would laugh at me like, oh, he's so unserious. And then the mayor would say, shut the fuck up. That's the most serious question I ever heard. This is, this is why you're here. This is, this is actually the purpose of why you are all here. And then he said, how many ping pong rackets do you need? And I was like, well, maybe 15 or whatever. And he's like, I'll fix that. And I think that's like some examples of that. There are, of course, more, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Being honest and frank, basically, and calling shit out. I think that's always, always been. I, I don't think I'm a very, very good employee because I wouldn't just go go with everything. I would probably question a lot of things. Mm. It, well, yeah. it's interesting. It's interesting that I guess first of all, you're in what what appears to me to be a country culture that's direct and honest and frank. And then, I guess at a personality level, <laughs> it's it's probably unavoidable. <laughs> unavoidable for you to do that and then you've also been rewarded for it so those three things come together uh, they don't always come together in that way for people who want to be like that and sometimes it can take 20 30 40 years for someone to find their voice and you happen to find it early launched a company around it and you've you've obviously succeeded in whatever the word success means to you it's, it's quite an amazing feat have you spent much time in south korea uh no i went back just a few years ago first that was the first time i went back since i was adopted but i mean i thought i I, there was somewhere i was like maybe it's gonna feel like coming home maybe it's gonna feel like everyone are are like me and maybe yeah stuff like that but uh, when i came there it was quite the opposite of course Uh, i mean i've always been a firm believer that society and your surroundings is what's uh, what's what's going to to create the person who you are, and very little uh, down to biological genes. Uh, and I mean, if you if you look at all this science of when they studied um, twins, uh, they were brought up in two different homes. It turned out that of course they were much more like their unbiological uh, siblings rather than their biological twin sister or twin brother. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a, way, in a way, I kind of knew it, but yeah, I came there and nothing felt like home and, and not everything was different. And yeah. Uh, if, I want to ask you some more questions about uh, being adopted and if you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. with anything, obviously tell me to, to stop. Yeah, no problem. Like, how, how has your attitude to being adopted changed, if at all, over the years? Uh, I mean, of course, when you grow up in a society where you don't look like everyone else, that's going to be an issue. I mean, that's, uh, and especially since white is the norm and white is the power, uh, power race or whatever. 
you, everyone else say are a minority. So I mean, that was kind of obvious when you grew up. I was also very, I was smaller than everyone else uh, around me, and uh, the norm is to have a tall, blonde, white man with a lot of muscles. Uh, not not when not when you get older, but when everyone are young, that's kind of like what, what she should want as a, as a, as a woman or whatever. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, that was always something that you were aware of. Uh, I think that a lot of my personality have uh, ended up the way they are because I was trying to compete with that. Uh, I think I was trying to to be macho, trying to too hard to to compete with all these things because and compensate that I wasn't tall, that I wasn't white, that I wasn't this or that. Um, so, but yeah. And what about your yeah? What about the attitude towards it, it being adopted or to your to your birth parents? Is that something that you thought about a lot? Have thought about a lot? Is it not something that's like? A, Big part of your life contemplating it all yeah i mean well i mean i've been thinking about it a lot of course but to me i mean i i know that most probably my mother was very young and very poor uh, a lot of the mothers in south korea at that point who gave away their children for adoption were very poor and sometimes also it turned out now that that uh, they were stolen or taken from the mothers and sold they were actually selling babies to other countries at that time. So, I mean, I don't have any sort of grudge for it. Not at all. I don't think anyone wants to give away their child uh, freely. But um, so that, that uh, I don't have a grudge. But I also don't feel like finding anyone because it's all, I mean, maybe one day I will, but I haven't felt like I need to. And uh, it would be... Uh, a new person, a new family to get to know. And that would most likely involve a lot of responsibility because I don't think I can just meet them and then not give a fuck about them. And that way, I think that it's up to me to choose if I want to do that or not, because it's kind of a big step to take on another family. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's one of my reflections, I think. Um, so it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Have you used any of these themes that we've talked about as far as growing up as a Korean? Hang on, I want to get the words right. It's so easy to misspeak about these yeah. topics. Uh, let me ask it differently. I'll remove the adjectives. Have you used any of the themes that you've already mentioned directly in your work? Um, what, what themes do you, do you mean? The, the way that you were describing growing up in Sweden and what you said that you overcompensated for and how you were trying yeah. to project yourself have you used it directly in your work yeah definitely well i mean the added uh, attributes that i got from it uh, definitely i've been using in, in uh, so very i think the rebellious part of me kind of uh, kind of was created because i had to fight i think a lot of a lot of minorities uh, that that kind of make it above where they were supposed to uh, are very rebellious and are very like fight for their right to exist or whatever. I think it's kind of natural, um, but I haven't used 
adoption as something in our in in the work per se but i mean i think a lot of the attributes from having it is 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 i mean yeah kind of results in ways of thinking or ways of doing things interesting could you talk to me a little bit about the book make enemies and gain fans the snask i said snask and thank you for not correcting me although you're more than mm -hmm. welcome to correct me the snask way of becoming a successful creative entrepreneur a book you guys released in 2015 why did you make the book how did you approach it and what did you learn from publishing it well we actually made it a few years earlier and i think 2015 was the second edition of it but we actually wrote it because um, we wanted to tell people our journey uh, that it's not that hard to start a company and that you should listen to your own words but i think it basically we started writing down a manifesto and it was at the point over 100 points long and it was everything from how to be in, in your personal private life to how to be in the industry or how to be professional or whatever and then we just thought why not take the best of these and make it into chapters and write a book about it because this is what we firmly believe in and uh, that's basically what we what we did um so it's it's about the chronological order of, of, of our five first years in business but it's also about our our view of life and our industry as a whole are there any points from that book that you feel that you believe even more with a few years having passed now uh i think no well i think i do think that i have almost every point in that book still still is very relevant to me um because it's uh i mean it was so uh what do you say uh, very honest of, from us uh every chapter in that book was kind of like what we really believe in. i mean one is making enemies of course that's something we think is great um saying yes to things is something i firmly believe in because i think you have more fun when you say yes and there are so many times when you say when you feel too tired to say yes but when you actually go and see a friend or some do something that you didn't feel like you had the energy to you actually gain energy from it uh, i think we talk a lot about taking over the world and by that we mean that not caring about the old white man syndrome of, of making it, basically sitting in Chesterfield leather sofas, drinking whiskey, and that way getting business, but basically going another way, like for example, publishing your work on Behance, a forum where it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, if you, what sexuality you have, what, what race or gender or anything, uh, it's, it's just down to your work, the quality of your work. Uh, and I think we think that that's the new way of doing things. And that's a way of, of passing, going around the old, old, old man's kind of rule. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you also do quite a lot of talks. What themes are on your mind this year? Sorry, what themes? Yeah. What, well, like what talk, what, what are the themes of the talks that you're doing right now? I mean, I think we talk a lot about value, values because the world is, is going in a very strange direction with values. Uh, and uh, I think that 
a lot of more a lot more people nowadays are go are calling out companies that are not behaving accordingly and are not taking the responsibility and i think that's something that is just growing and growing and well it is if you look at statistics um and uh, that's something we 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 kind of talk about in our lecture a lot that caring is really really important that change is happening and it's kind of uh, what do you say let me see if i can find it it's this this is a, a quote by a friend from london called mark shaler and it goes through this i'm going to read it disruption is normal now change is fucking inevitable how it was done yesterday is not how it should be done today nothing stays the same and neither should you the problem comes when change happens and you don't. This this quote is is very uh, it's very obvious both when it comes to private life but also professional. Uh, there's a lot of companies where the clock, the time outside the company goes really fast, and the time within the company is not fast enough. People are not coping with 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 staying updated. So change is happening outside, and yeah, the problem comes when change happens and you don't. I think it's something uh, that sums up a lot of what we talk about. So we usually read this quote out loud as well. Okay. Uh, well, speaking of words like that, and even the manifesto that you mentioned, I think it's really important for strategy folk. And I think most people who listen to this might identify as a, a strategy folk or strategy person. I think it's important for them to have their own little manifesto and or artist statement. And I, I don't think that's a common practice. Did you work no. on so something like that in design school? Um, no, but we, we were encouraged by, by our teachers in, in, because we studied in the UK for three years at a place called Cambria Institute of the Arts. Nowadays, it's part of the Cambria University. But for example, I remember we had a professor of graphic design who was teaching us in the beginning and he, he started out teaching us about music for a month and then about film. And after two months, he asked us, what have I been teaching you for two years, for two months? And we were like, music and film. He's like, no, I've been teaching you about graphic design because with graphic design is actually a part of popular culture. It's a part of music. It's a part of, of film. It's a part of, of politics. It's a part of, part of everything. And he basically elevated the, the importance of being like a graphic designer or a branding person or something, which is kind of cool. Like he created pride uh, within that that profession to don't do work for companies that you don't believe in because you have the power to deliver a message and if you do deliver this message you are also responsible for what the, that message is and from who it is i think that's that's something that is really cool Mm -hmm. a couple of last questions mm -hmm. how what what just on the manifesto thing what is the benefit of writing a manifesto or something that's like a manifesto? Because obviously there are a lot of very corny, shallow manifestos, but what's the benefit of doing it for the individual? And then how should one, how can one approach it? Yeah, sorry, I forgot the question you had before. In, 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 at the university, we also learned, got a lot of inspired by our teachers also telling us about all these manifestos that were made up back in the days uh, within graphic design. So that's how we got inspired by it. But I think it's really important to have a manifesto because one, it, it basically puts down on paper or whatever 
what you believe in and what you don't believe in. It basically gives you a direction. And if you say, because I think that manifesto should be have a certain tone of uh, like way of being, way of, of writing, so to speak. I mean, you can, uh, if you take a manifesto, it, should, it could start with if you don't and then, or it should be kind of like on point, very like uh, straightforward, like basically. And I mean, if you write, if you don't like pasta, eat sushi, that's fucking boring and of course nothing. Um, people might laugh when they hear it, but then you read some people's or some agencies' manifestos and it's almost at the same level. And it's because they're afraid of making enemies. They're afraid to speak out. And I think that, I think that if you write your own manifesto, make sure it's not bland and boring and make sure that it's actually clear and kind of almost extreme and let people know. I mean, there's a quote by Tibor Kama when he said, when you make something no one hates, no one loves it. So if you want to make a manifesto and want people to love it, then be prepared that people are going to hate it as well. But probably you're not best friends without the people who's going to hate it. And you don't need their love for it either. And everyone doesn't have to think the same. So I think that's something that everyone should have in mind when you write your manifesto. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think manifestos, if they're done in a useful way, are essentially they're little, little operating systems because they capture your values and your beliefs. And if you're bold and if you can be outspoken to yourself, you almost catch yourself in the act of being honest, knowing that sometimes during the day, during the week in different relationships, that honesty will disappear and you'll feel awkward about it but when you write it down you're practicing it and hopefully you stay accountable to it and they can be really powerful mechanisms and I think for anyone who hasn't done one before there are books that capture I picked up one recently on publishing manifestos but there's there are books that capture a lot of manifestos from around the world from past centuries they're all over the internet and if you're struggling to find your voice I think a few days of stream of consciousness writing where you just get all the junk out think about what you believe, write whatever comes to mind about anything, and then gradually push yourself into sharper words, you can, you can get there. But sometimes there's this process of uh, removing the, the, the fluff and the, the, the hot air so you can actually get to the thing. Yeah, and I mean, I think every person should start with reading human rights. What, what is human rights and what does it actually mean? And if they're on the wrong side of it, they're probably the idiots and they have a lot of work to do. But if they're on the right side of it, then they also need to think, am I actually standing up for every human right there is in the world? And probably they realize, no, I'm not. And maybe I should, or maybe I should have some of it in my manifesto that I believe in equal rights, no matter gender, no matter what, no matter race, no matter class no matter I mean if you actually start just reading human rights you realize that you believe in so much more than you started to before and I think those questions are very important especially today that believing in human rights people might think it's 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 what is a uh, something given but it's not 
today human rights is not something that people take for granted and people aren't necessarily agreeing with it and i think that's horrible so i think it's really important that if you believe in them speak out talk about it because people need to hear it love it i'm so happy that we were able to chat i flew into stockholm on the weekend and whether or not we ever meet face to face i knew that i had to interview you because i've loved your work and hearing you talk about your work and your philosophy i just wish that a lot of this rubs off it doesn't even matter about whether it rubs off into young or old people but onto people because yeah. it the, the world needs more honest direct and frank voices because the opposite of that is repression and it creates these careers where if people aren't as bold as you and they work for other people, these careers that just swirl and don't go anywhere and then they spit you out. And yep. then, you've, then you've got to work out how to reassemble yourself. So huge respect to what you've done and your, your, what, what sounds like a very strong sense of self. Where, where can people find you on the internet, Freddie? First of all, thank you for those kind words. Uh, on the internet, people can find us on Instagram, Facebook and on snask.com. They can just search on Snask and we will turn up in their search results. S-N-A-S-K. Freddie, thanks so much for making time uh, to speak with me on Sweathead today. I hope that we get to meet one day and may you continue to make beautiful, provocative, frank work. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Awesome, man. All right, peace.